You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. So we're in the middle of a sermon series here called A New Humanity, or The New Humanity, and it's about the Sermon on the Mount. And the first, in the first part of the series, we looked at the Beatitudes. What are the characteristics of a person living in sync with God's kingdom? They mourn over their sin. They're pure in heart. They're poor in spirit. They're humble and peacemakers. And now we switch to a second part of the sermon that's looking more about what is the behavior of someone who's living in sync with God's kingdom look like? How do they live and act? And this second section has a series of sayings that where Jesus first quotes something in the Old Testament. And then what he does is he deepens and rounds out its implications for our life. And he talks about how those who are living in sync with the kingdom have behavior that reflects uh, the love of God. So a couple weeks ago, you looked at Jesus' application of the sixth commandment, do not murder. And he talks about how even having hatred for our brother or sister in our hearts is like committing murder. And this is a serious breach of love for others. This week, we're going to look at two more sayings of Jesus. In the first one, Jesus quotes the second commandment, um, and you shall not commit adultery. And then he also quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 24.1 on instructions on how to divorce your wife. So this is very light, a light summer topic for us this morning. Um, But let's read it together. It's found in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 32. So if you can stand with me in honor of God's word. So you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So please be seated and let's pray. So Jesus, we come before you this morning. You taught this many thousands of years ago, and we ask that through your spirit, you will again teach us. Teach us what you were trying to say and how you would have us respond. Pray that you will develop in us the character and behavior of kingdom people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Before we dive into this sensitive topic, I want to invite you to check your hearts. And there, I think there are probably at least two groups of people here this morning who are going to find this sermon uncomfortable. And the first are those who've struggled with lust, or maybe have committed adultery, or maybe divorced. And if you are in this group, know that in Jesus there's compassion and forgiveness. And I invite you to come to the text with an open heart because Jesus brings good news. 
The other group here may be people who have not struggled with lust, but maybe you've been wounded by someone who has. Or maybe you judge people who struggle or are divorced. And I want to invite you into this text with, mer with mercy and compassion. Remember, just a few verses before Jesus said this. He said, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. So let's start in verse 27 when Jesus begins with the commandment not to commit adultery. And his listeners would have heard that and they would have nodded in agreement and a Jewish person would have understood that the context of sex was part of the marriage covenant. But then Jesus says something that would have made his listeners then and now uncomfortable. Anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And what Jesus is saying is that what we think about in our heads actually impacts the core of who we are, our motivations and our desires. And I can imagine that his listeners began to squirm. And Jesus is particularly addressing some issues that impacted men in the ancient world and now. Now, when it comes to lust, I've often heard people rationalize. It doesn't really matter what I think about. It only matters what I do. But we humans have a strong tendency to focus on our outward actions, and we judge ourselves based on what other people see us do. But Jesus doesn't make this distinction. Living in sync with the kingdom means that what's happening in our hearts and in our heads, what's going on inside of us, is as important as what is seen on the outside. Now, my, the last time my oldest daughter was visiting me in Vancouver, my mom came for a visit. And for some reason, our conversation triggered a memory of an old song. And she started to whistle a Dean Martin tune called Standing in the Corner. Now, if you're not old enough to know this song, it's a lighthearted song about a man watching beautiful women walk down the street and lust after them. And it was written by Count Basie. You can see some of the lyrics up there. And we found the song on Spotify. We listened together at some of the choice words. And my daughters challenged my mom. And they said, Nona, this is a song about sexual harassment. And uh, <laughs> there she was whistling it. So I don't know how many of us, especially those of us who are young women or have been young women, have experienced the shame of being objectified as we walk down the street. And one of my most humiliating memories is something an old man said to me when I was 14 years old, and it stuck with me to this day. And one of Basie's lines particularly stood out to my daughters and outraged them. And he says, you can't go to jail for what you're thinking. And this is not how Jesus thinks about lust. Anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in, with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now to Jesus, this is serious stuff. Take decisive and direct action, even if it seems pleasurable, even if it feels like an essential part of your life. It is, in fact, ruining your life. And so let's define lust. Lust is to set your heart on, to crave, to long for something, to covet, to desire it. 
And you can lust after many things. You can lust after money, after food, and relationships. And the word that's used for lust here is often used in the New Testament in the context of money and idolatry, so greed around money. And lusting after money might look like fantasizing about what you would do if you got a pay raise or if you won the lottery. It might look like just trusting in your money to give you security and meaning or status. And when money becomes our idol, in many ways it becomes like a god to us. And it's also possible to have the same kind of greed when it comes to sex. And Jesus is not just talking about seeing someone and thinking they're beautiful or that initial response our bodies might have to someone who's attractive. Instead, what he's talking about is when we look at another person and we begin to crave them and to form fantasies about them and to desire to possess them. That is lust. And sexual idolatry can look like pornography and masturbation, or sex outside of marriage, or believing that you need to have sex to be a whole and a happy person. Now in condemning sexual idolatry and lust, Jesus is in keeping with what was already written in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament directs people against lust of all kinds. If you think of this 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And the book of Proverbs also counsels against it. The Old Testament gives a sense that lust can be controlled. So think of Joseph in Genesis 39 when he flees from Potiphar's wife. Or the opposite, David, who lacks self-control when he looks at beautiful Bathsheba and then he takes advantage of her and her husband and he's condemned in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And in the New Testament, Joseph's Uh, Mary's husband is an example of self-control and so he exercised it when the angel of the Lord commanded him when he takes Mary as his wife not to have sexual relations with her until Jesus was born. And so Jewish people would have understood that lust was not good. But Jesus' teaching on lust has two significant differences from Jewish thought at the time. And so many rabbis blamed the woman, who according to them enticed the men. And so their solution to this was to keep women separate from men. But Jesus places the blame squarely upon the man. It is his lustful look that is the sin. And so the one who is looking is responsible, not the one who is being looked at. And secondly, Jesus' solution to this problem was novel. So instead of isolating women or directing them to cover up, he directs the men to change their thinking. And not only that, Jesus goes on to demonstrate the possibility that men and women can be friends. And so he, Jesus has many women as friends. He travels with them, and they are his disciples. Now, to blame women for men's inability to c- control their lust is a long-standing practice. Even the Canadian courts um, did this for decades regarding rape. So it, it was the woman's fault. What was she wearing? Was she being suggestive? How did she contribute to what happened? And this was also a common practice in the church when I was growing up, and even into the 90s and the 2000s, the problem with lust was put on women. If women would dress or act differently, there wouldn't be a problem. And so the directive was given to us, don't cause men to stumble. And we were led to believe that it was our fault and we felt shame about our bodies. But Jesus didn't buy this blame the victim stance. He is clear 
that the problem with the lust is the one who is gazing. The problem with lust is male desire. And this problem calls for self-control for the one who is viewing beauty rather than the one who possesses it. Now, we live in a very different society than Jesus. In an egalitarian society like ours, this is a problem for men, but also for some women. And men are also objectified, and women can objectify men. And so although Jesus addresses this to just men, today this applies to both men and women. And a recent study suggests that about 74% of women view pornography at least monthly, or young women under 30, and close to 96% of young men. I think there are three reasons why Jesus sees lust as not in sync with the kingdom of God. And these are the holiness of bodies, the commandment to love your neighbor, and the bonding power of sex. So first, the holiness of bodies. And we can see in the Genesis creation story and in the rest of scripture that as humans, we, our souls and bodies are interconnected. And so we're not a soul inhabiting a body or a body with a spirit. We are souled bodies or embodied souls. And the Apostle Paul in his letters in the New Testament talks about the body of followers of Jesus as being God's temple. And he tells us in Romans 12 to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And so the body is not bad, it's not irrelevant, it's core to who we are. And so what we do with our bodies matter. It's supremely important. And just as our spiritual health affects our physical health, so our physical health affects our spiritual health. And humans are incredibly valuable to God. We are made in the image of God, and the way we treat our bodies and how we look at other bodies profoundly matters to God. And so to treat another human as an object is to defile them. Theologian Phyllis Isabel Shepherd talks about the sin of objectifying and violating others' bodies. And she says that because bodies, including women's bodies, are made in the image of God, to mistreat them, to demean them, to treat them like objects, defaces the image of God. And that should make us angry. And it wounds the person who's being objectified and corrupts both the perpetrator and the victim. Now, recent studies bear this out. So men who use pornography have lower views of women. And in a study called a meta-analysis that looked at studies from seven different countries, they found there was a statistically significant difference between higher porn consumption and increased sexual aggression, regardless of whether the pornography contained explicit physical violence or not. And so the researchers argue that the consequence to the objectification and degradation of women in the, that's existing in scenes in pornography has a huge impact on the way men think about women. And not only that, pornography has a huge impact on women. It pressures women to adapt their appearance and behavior to fulfill, other fan, uh, to fulfill others' fantasies. And this mars the image of God. And so lust degrades people who are made in the image of God, and that is why Jesus says it's better to gouge your eye out than to look at another with lust. 
Second reason why lust is not in sync with God's kingdom is one of the greatest commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we do this, there, that there can be no desire that is acted on towards another person without love. And so lust draws sexually from another person. It's not for reasons of connection or intimacy, but entirely for self-gratification, to meet our own needs. It's self-centered. I don't care if it's hurting you or me. And in many ways, lust is our feeble attempt to fill a void, to make ourselves feel better, to have power over others. And this is a void that God wants to fill. And that is why it's idolatry. Thirdly, every time a human has a sexual experience, whether it's with a real person or a fantasy, it creates a bond. And when we use pornography, we become bonded to that image. When we lust after someone, when we um, create uh, scenes in our mind, we create a bond. And that's why Jesus said uh, we are committing adultery in our hearts. And so what happens is if we bond with many things, then our bond with our partner, our wife or husband, decreases. And research has shown that pornography addiction, particularly in men, decreases their emotional bond to their wife. It decreases their satisfaction in marriage, makes them have higher expectations for their partner, and they are less willing to be in a real relationship. And so long-term for men, this means that men become increasingly isolated from real relationships, increasingly lonely, and experience relational deterioration. The long-term implications for people who are married to those who are addicted to pornography is also devastating because it violates the marriage covenant. And pornography is a significant factor in many divorces. Many women who discover that their husbands are involved in pornography addiction uh, experience what is now called betrayal trauma, which is a kind of PTSD. And I've sat with many women whose experience of being married to uh, someone with a problem with lust or pornography is very similar to a woman who's married to someone who's had an affair. Lust is not a no big deal issue just because we all struggle with it. And when we engage in lust, we are making our desires, our wants, the most important thing in our life. And that's why Jesus reminds us here that when something other than God occupies a central place in our life, that is idolatry. And we risk finding ourselves eternally separated from God. And this is a big deal. And that's why he uses hyperbole to describe what a big deal it is. Better to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. And Pastor Dale Bruner reminds us, it's better to go limping into heaven than leaping into hell. To refrain from lust requires radical action. So it's one thing to know that lust devalues the body, that it is unloving, that creates a bond with someone we're not married to, but it's another thing to stop it. And becoming a person who looks and acts like Jesus, someone whose behavior is in sync with the kingdom, is not a simple thing. It's not a simple matter of just knowing what is right and doing it. It is not that easy. And the Bible talks about sin as an enslaving force. And the sin of lust is such a thing. And I've been working with men and women struggling with sexual brokenness and lust for many decades. 
And these behaviors are incredibly hard to break. So MRI studies reveal that pornography activates the same regions in the brain as substance addiction, like alcohol or cocaine. And lust creates well-worn pathways in our brain. It trains our bodies to crave the release of hormones and provides a temporary relief from anxiety and shame and unmet needs and self-hatred. And it's often a way we've coped with our emptiness for 10, 20, or even 50 years. And so it is an enslaving force. And the Apostle Paul understands this. And in Romans 7, he writes this, I do not understand what I do. For what I do, I do not want to do. But what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And when we find ourselves helplessly enslaved, Jesus brings good news. The work that Jesus has done on the cross can set us free. And Jesus calls us to repentance, to turn from our sin, and to turn towards him for power over sin and for freedom. And for most of us who are caught in these addictive behaviors, freedom doesn't come in an instantaneous spiritual moment. There's not a magic prayer for this. But freedom comes over time as we walk with Jesus, as we confess to God and to others, as we share our story, as we allow friends to walk with us and learn new ways to deal with anxiety and shame and self-hatred. And for some of my friends, this has meant radical action giving up their smartphones, maybe even having to give up internet in their homes or no longer living alone, and meeting with others regularly for support. They've made costly decisions in order to be free. Now, if you're someone who struggles with lust or pornography or other kinds of sexual addiction, I want to encourage you not to hide. It's easy to do that, but don't live in shame. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ about it, or a pastor. I'm sure Cam would be happy to talk to you about that, someone from their prayer team, a trusted friend. Ask them for help. And if you're not ready to talk to a human, I put some online resources up on the screen. So if that wasn't enough, we have one more saying to look at. And so imagine Jesus spoke this whole sermon in one sitting. But let's briefly look about what Jesus said next about divorce. And there's some overlap in these sayings, but there's a little bit of a different angle. And so remember, Jesus is quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 24.1 when he says, anyone who divorces a wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So un to understand this saying, it's important to look at some background on marriage in the scriptures and what was going on around divorce in Jesus' contemporaries. So in Genesis 2, we see this description of the first marriage when God brings a first man to the first woman and he responds in delight. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And verse 24 says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. 
And so marriage in the scriptures is described as an indissoluble covenant between a man and a woman. And so yesterday I performed a marriage. I don't know if any of you know Dan Tao who attends here, but at their wedding they made these promises and these were not meant to be conditional. I'll keep my promises if you keep your promises. We're meant to keep our promises to our spouse and they're meant to keep theirs. And when we do this, uh, we live in the commitment of covenant. It provides safety and security and it allows deeper feelings to grow. And this relationship is a gift from God, and it also is a symbol of God's relationship with us, God's people. It's a holy covenant. And in Jesus' day, the marriage covenant had eroded, and there was little respect for it. And instead of mutual commitment, the man had the power, and if his wife didn't please him, he could end the marriage. And there was this argument at the time between two different rabbinic schools. Um, one school said that adultery was le- the only legitimate reason for divorce. And the other school, the school of Hillel, said that it could be for any reason. It could be for her having a bad temper or talking to a stranger on the street or even burning his dinner. And both sides assumed marriage was dependent on the wife behaving properly. And what they disagreed on is how bad does a wife have to be till you get rid of her? And so Jesus responds to this argument in Matthew 19, four to 10, when the Pharisees ask him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And so I think it would be helpful to read Jesus' response. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. And so when Jesus responds to this argument that the Pharisees were having, he appeals to the creation story, to the one flesh bond in marriage. But he refuses to side with either either's argument about how how bad does a wife have to be. Jesus calls on both spouses to be faithful as mutual covenant partners, a faithfulness that's not dependent on the other's behavior. And theologian Beth Valker-Jones explains the significance of what Jesus is saying. And she says that in a patriarchal culture, in the patriarchal culture of the ancient world, adultery was understood as a property crime against husbands who suffered the misuse of their property, their wives. But Jesus makes it clear that adultery is not a property crime. It's much worse. It's a violation of what it means to be human, a breach of covenant partnership. Women aren't property. They're covenant partners. Women aren't to be used. They're to be loved. And men can commit adultery. And so as people living in sync with the kingdom, we don't commit to being sexually faithful as long as our partners are faithful. We're faithful because our partners are beloved of God, and we recognize that our faithfulness is a sign of God's faithfulness to us. So Jesus is for marriage and against divorce, and he believes that marriage is a holy 
sacred union, and divorce is against God's design. But in Matthew, it does appear that Jesus goes along with Moses' permission to allow divorce for adultery, although this is not required. And in those cases, remarriage is permitted. This is not the final word that Jesus has to say on divorce, uh, that the New Testament has to say on divorce. And the Apostle Paul expands the definition in 1 Corinthians 7 when he adds abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. So Scott McKnight in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount summarizes by saying that marriages are destroyed when one partner uh, refuses to be with the other partner or is against the other partner. And when this happens, the covenant may be destroyed and may be grounds for divorce. Now, none of us come to marriage with perfect purity. And if we take Jesus' words seriously, likely all of us have committed adultery in our hearts. All of us are in need of God's grace and the support of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And divorce is never God's intention. So as followers of Jesus, God desires to transform us into the kind of people who can be faithful, who can keep the covenants we make. But God is also merciful and gracious and provides for us pastorally because we live in a sinful world. And so although Jesus radically elevates the importance of faithfulness, he recognizes that we live in a messy world. And sometimes marriages end because we need to be protected from unfaithfulness, abuse, and violations of the marriage covenant. But divorce should not be pursued lightly. And a decision to break the covenant has ripple effects on our children, our extended families, our friends, and even our church community. And so recent statistics suggest that about 38% of marriages end in divorce and 85% of people get divorced because of a lack of commitment, not because of an affair or abuse, just kind of we're not into it anymore, we fell out of love. Um, That's not the kind of divorce uh, that Jesus condones. And children with divorced parents are twice as likely to attempt suicide. Teenagers whose parents divorced are more likely to experience mental health issues. And children and women of divorce are more likely to end up in poverty. But in light of Jesus, in light of the gospel, there's grace and mercy. And Jesus offers forgiveness uh, no matter what has happened in our lives. But these are some of the natural outcomes of sexuality and marriage on our own terms. So as I conclude, I want to say that these things that Jesus has said in this text this morning are hard-hitting, but they're key in understanding what the kingdom of God is like. To Jesus, sexual and marital ethics aren't just about getting the rules right. They're not arbitrary. They're not about outward appearances or condemning others. They're not controlling or shaming or negative about sex. They're about treating other humans with deep respect as image bearers of God. That is the point of these commands. And to live in sync with the, this kingdom ethic, we need the gospel. We need the good news of Jesus, that our sins are forgiven, that the power of sin in our lives is broken, that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And living out this ethic successfully is not just trying harder, because we are very weak creatures. It's entirely dependent on God's power working in us. And so let's pray and let's invite God's power to transform us. 
So God, we come before you and we acknowledge that we are weak creatures, that we are enslaved to sin, that we need your power, a power greater than ourselves, to break the power of sin in our lives, and particularly the sin of lust. And so God, we invite you uh, to be present to us in the midst of us. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you have cleansed us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who fills and empowers us. And God, we ask that you will bring freedom, that we will be a community who models this love for others, this honoring of others as image bearers of God. We ask for your mercy this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash rail city to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the rail city campus of CA Church.